Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. The Supreme Court on Monday cleared a path for Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance to obtain eight years of federal income tax returns belonging to former President Donald J. Trump and other records from his accountants. The ruling ended a long-running and desperate legal fight by Trump to block prosecutors' access to the information. Today, the most transactional president in our history, the man who came to the job with the least knowledge of the three branches of government of any president in our history, probably expected way back when his three appointees to go his way. They, of course, as no one needs remind you, did not. It means that the grand jury investigation into the alleged hush money payments and other issues will no longer be hampered by Trump's fights to keep the documents secret. The district attorney's office most likely already has some of the documents in hand. Vance, in a terse one-sentence tweet, wrote, The work continues, sounding more like a Zen samurai warrior than the New York City district attorney. This is just the beginning, and and that's the thing. Um, We've waited five years to get to the beginning, and this is what this long process this long, arduous process has been about. For Vance, though, this case has become deeply personal as he has shrugged off the best of Donald's slings and arrows, aiming to discredit Vance and has dutifully slogged forward with methodical discipline. What's hiding in these tax records and other relevant documents is the $1 billion question and will likely decide the fate of Donald Trump. So in speaking with former prosecutors, they're gonna have to establish a timeline What did the president and the Trump organization and those working for him present to banks at the same time that they were presenting information to tax authorities like the state of New York? Was there a discrepancy between those two? If so, is something provably false? Vance has wasted no time while waiting for his crucial decision from the Supreme Court. Earlier this month, he appointed veteran prosecutor Mark Pomerantz to lead the investigation into Donald Trump. It's rare for a prosecutor to be brought in from outside the DA's office, but shows Vance's determination to not just get the facts right, but make the case stick. Pomerantz has come out of retirement, a veteran of New York's mafia wars, where scores of organized crime figures were tried and sentenced in complex and sprawling cases that broke the back of La Cosa Nostra in New York City. Pomerantz is widely respected and feared for his courtroom abilities and handling of complex cases. That lawyer, as a prosecutor and then as a defense attorney, litigated dozens of organized crime cases, including some some of the highest profile cases in the worst of the mafia wars in New York City. As a prosecutor, he ran both the appellate unit and the criminal unit at SDNY in two different stints in that storied U.S. Attorney's Office. He ran both of those divisions at SDNY. Basically, Vance brought in a ringer to make sure there are no missteps in bringing Trump to justice. Now with Pomerantz in place as his prosecutorial gunslinger and Trump's financial documents being released by Mazers, the real showdown can finally begin. I don't know what is exactly in those tax documents, but I can guess, and if they are as bad as I suspect, he will be going away for a long, long time. As someone who has already spent hours downtown with Vance's team, providing testimony and helping decipher documents and provide color and information as needed, these guys mean fucking business. Dead meat. 
Donald Trump has long fashioned himself as a master of litigation, using the court as a blunt instrument to force his will upon a variety of foes. His goal was not justice in any reasonable sense of the word, but rather a form of gross intimidation, shock, and awe. He wouldn't just sue you like a normal person, but instead wanted to bury you in countersuits until the mere cost of defending yourself became ruinous. For Donald Trump, it was sport. He didn't just want to win, but wanted to humiliate and hurt his opponents. For nearly half a century, Trump has used lawsuits as cudgels and prods and publicity stunts. He and his wigmen have used them or threats of them to harass, to deflect, and to delay, to punish opponents and protect his brand, his money, his image, himself. Even in the face of losses, he has used them to find a way to win. For most of his business life, it was the courts where Donald Trump had made his bones. Why? First off, New York real estate is pretty nasty business and deals in all manner of troubles and much of it ends up in court. Remember until the end of the 80s, if you wanted to buy cement to build something, it was coming from the mafia. Trump though took it farther than most. He stiffed contractors and he played games as shady as possible. That was the art of the deal. Lie, cheat, and steal. The federal government, if it dared to intervene, was often countersued as well. When somebody confronts you, you have an opponent, you just attack mer mercilessly. You never admit that you're wrong. You just keep saying what you want to be true. You, you make your own reality. I mean, these are the things that we see Donald Trump doing today, and Roy Cohn was doing that for him in the 70s and in the 80s. Donald Trump is nothing if not consistent in his tactics, and we need to go back to 1973 when the former president was just a 27-year-old shadow of his powerful father, Fred, to understand how he viewed the courts. The government accused Fred and Donald Trump of violating the Fair Housing Act of 1968 at 39 Trump-built and managed buildings in Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. The Trumps needed a lawyer to help them defend the case. It was the kind that lawyers advise you to settle to avoid negative press and the stigma of discrimination charges. But Fred Trump was an ardent racist and a difficult man not inclined to settle. So, young Donald began searching for a lawyer to represent him and his father, and that choice would change his life and color the way he used, or rather abused, the courts for the rest of his life. Roy Cohn urged Trump and his father to fight back, attack, 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 bloody your opponent, then declare victory no matter the result. In that very first meeting, Cohn laid out for him his philosophy of how to fight back in a lawsuit, how to fight back against a federal investigation, and that was to hit back 10 times harder. That's what happened on December 12, 1973, when Trump held a news conference at the New York Hilton to announce a counterclaim saying the government knowingly made false and misleading statements. Cohn sought $100 million for the Trumps. Donald Trump claimed that the government was trying to force the company to lease apartments to people on welfare. The result was a courtroom slog that went on for two years and ended with a settlement, but not before Trump and Cohn declared unanimous victory. It was a blueprint he would follow for the rest of his life and into his presidency. Uh, Trump saw the legal system in a different kind of way. He saw it as a, a weapon uh, to destroy the adversary. 
not necessarily to get at the truth, perhaps even to get at a lie, but uh, the legal system could be a very potent weapon in his business arsenal later in his public arsenal. Over the next 45 years, Trump would use the same approach, later with me leading the charge to avoid accountability on a number of charges. Over the years, he was party to nearly 3,500 separate lawsuits and became, for all intents and purposes, the plaintiff-in-chief. He deployed the same scorched-earth tactic when defending himself against the allegations of Robert Mueller and later when trying to overturn election results. But all that came to an end Monday when the court, in a terse 16-word statement, denied Donald Trump what he desired most, to remain above the law. That this, this area of potential criminal legal exposure is Donald Trump's trigger. This is what he fears most, that the bad press is something he's become, if not numb to, accustomed to. But it is this fear, and this is what triggered his rage at Jeff Sessions when he recused from the Mueller probe. This is what triggered 23 months of rage at Robert Mueller. It brought Donald Trump to, to say in an interview with the New York Times that it would be crossing a red line if Mueller looked into his business dealings. And now the Supreme Court has said, Fair game. That the decision should come a month after Trump left office in a cloud of shame and repudiation for his role of inciting the January 6th insurrection leads me to believe that the nation's highest court was simply done with the former president, wanting to turn the page on the Donald Trump chapter in history and fucking move on. That same day, the court rejected two other Trump cases and declined to hear Stormy Daniels' case against the former president. They also quickly refuted any notion that Trump would escape accountability for his actions. The Supreme Court may be inherently apolitical, but they still are human beings with eyes and ears and are not immune to feelings of anger and recrimination to how Trump desecrated the Capitol and put people's lives in danger. By giving Vance the go-ahead to view these crucial documents, they were very quietly doing their part to put Trump where he belongs. And by the way, we've been waiting for the Supreme Court to decide what to do here since last October. That's when the Trump uh, emergency appeal was filed to the Supreme Court. And my guess was the court didn't want to get involved during the election campaign and then didn't want to get involved in all the legal controversy after the election and then didn't want to get involved in the impeachment issue. But now that the coast is clear, the Supreme Court's order has come out. A brief one-line order saying simply it was referred to the circuit justice, Stephen Breyer, and denied. In a lengthy and angry statement that included a reiteration of many of his familiar grievances, Mr. Trump lashed out at the Supreme Court and the investigation, which he characterized as a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country. He then added, for more than two years, New York City has been looking at almost every transaction I've ever done, including seeking tax returns, which were done by amongst the biggest and most prestigious law and accounting firms in the United States. It's a witch hunt. That's all it is. The witch hunt, as I call it. Russian witch hunt. This is a witch hunt like nobody's ever seen before. What's so delicious about this dramatic turnabout in Trump's legal fortunes is the fact that this latest legal ruling came from his judges, as he's fond of saying. 
But despite depositing Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and the witchy Amy Comey Barrett on his nation's highest court, ensuring a conservative majority for a generation, they have not been inclined to ride with Trump off the cliff into his dream state of an Orwellian kleptocracy that allows he and his family to pick the bones of this country and remain in power forever. This is the People's Court. This is the plaintiff, the President of the United States. He claims that some phony judges are being very mean to him. He's asking for broad, unchecked power. Will he get it? I am heartened by this fact that despite his best attempts to corrupt the judiciary, it nonetheless upheld the rule of law time and time again. First, there was the embarrassing string of losses in the federal and appellate courts during Trump's post-election big lie, where he went on 0-52 on his cases. Get the fuck out of here. Judges Trump appointed for life told him to go shit in his hat. This was always Trump's most persistent fatal flaw. He truly believed that everyone around him was as corrupt, mercenary, and for sale as he was. Except they aren't. When push came to shove, Trump's judges stood up for the Constitution. It makes me laugh as I can imagine him baffled by the idea that these judges have actual principles beyond their own ambition. But that is Trump in a nutshell, narcissistic and delusional to the end. This weekend, we will see all this come to a fascinating and grotesque denouncement when Trump takes the stage at CPAC as its keynote speaker and will take a victory lap before his most diehard loyalists. Expect a MAGA Greatest Hits tour when Trump transitions from president to leader of Magistan. Do you believe President Trump should be speaking, or former President Trump should be speaking at CPAC this weekend? Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney? Uh, that's up to CPAC. I've, I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I, don't, I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. Without Twitter to air his grievances and victimhood 24 hours a day, Trump has plenty of pent-up anger to air and will unleash it upon the gathered throngs who are aching for a MAGA revival. They want to rebuild your home. They want to take away your hamburgers. This is what Stalin dreamt about but never achieved. You are on the front lines of the war against communism coming back to America under the guise of democratic socialism which is just the PC term for communism. I want everyone to take to heart, Donald J. Trump is never going to let it happen. And as he said to Congress, America will never be a socialist country. Expect Trump to proclaim himself the presumptive 2024 nominee for president to massive applause. He will leave the conference energized and more deluded than ever before that he will actually one day return to the White House. While Trump does his best Mussolini imitation and creepy conservatives kiss his ass, the Manhattan DA's office will be working around the clock, pouring through documents, looking for that smoking gun. And like I've said before, this time, there's no one around to save him. When you hear these Republican senators saying, look, this is what the criminal justice system is supposed to do, I think that can lead uh, reluctant 
uh, officials who might be on the fence, even though they if they believe a crime has been committed, to move forward. In the coming weeks, we will spend significant time unraveling the various complexities of the DA's case against Donald Trump. I will remind you that all of this began as a result of my payoff to Stormy Daniels just prior to the 2016 election at the direction of and at the behest of so-called Individual One, a.k.a. Cheeto Face. In that time, though, the case has morphed into a sprawling investigation into the personal finances of Donald Trump his children, and the Trump organization in general. It's important that they're looking at more than just the hush money payments because those hush money charges are complex, they're difficult to make. And it sounds like, based on Kara's reporting, what the Manhattan DA is looking at here is potential fraud relating to the value of assets, overstating the value of your assets to get loans, understating the value of your assets when it comes tax time. That kind of thing is straightforward textbook fraud. It's much easier for prosecutors to prove those kind of charges. What's being investigated will hopefully put Trump away for the rest of his life. Fraudulent tax returns, doctored business records, and mismatches between those tax returns and documents that overvalued his business holdings in order to secure loans from Deutsche Bank. Vance has already deposed witnesses from Deutsche Bank and the Aon Insurance Brokerage Company. Then there is my own documented work helping Vance understand how Trump would manipulate his own net worth for both attention and favorable loan terms from its lenders. The New York Times' Mike McIntyre called Trump's financial records a veritable how-to guide for getting rich while losing millions of dollars and paying little to no income taxes. So stay tuned, folks. The worst is yet to come. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on And now for the main event. While we sort through the revelations and expected bombshells that will emanate from Trump's financial information being released to the Manhattan D.A., I thought it would be a good time to lighten the mood here at Maya Culpa and talk to one of the funniest men around. My next guest, George Wallace, is not only wildly entertaining, but also deeply involved in Georgia politics and campaigned heavily for Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in their victorious Senate campaigns. Wallace, who began his career as a writer for the legendary Red Fox show, later became a renowned stand-up in his own right and the roommate and best friend of Jerry Seinfeld before moving west and becoming known as Mr. Las Vegas and the premier big-room talent on the Strip. In 2018, he cemented his hold on Twitter when New York Magazine's Vulture named him the funniest person on the platform. Right now, he has a book out called Bulltwit, which is a compilation of his best Twitter rants and will star in the upcoming clean slate for the Peacock Network from legendary producer Norman Lear. On today's episode, Wallace is in an expansive mood, eager to discuss the election, the mystery of Donald Trump, and how I should become a stand-up comedian. Sometimes, with all the chaos and worry that comes our way, it's just good to laugh every once in a while. So let's listen now to that conversation. On January 26th, 
in an epic tweet that you wrote and you said, I got all these Trump jokes laying around. Need to have me a comedy garage sale, followed by some more stuff that I don't have the comedic chops to repeat properly. Can you share with me your three favorite Trump jokes and feel free to be completely obscene? Listen to me, Trump jokes. Well, I, first of all, uh, he said that uh, all black people are living in poverty. And I did call him. I tried to get in touch with him to let him know that I wanted to talk to him about that. But I couldn't decide which one of my houses I wanted to meet him at. So that was one joke I did. The other joke was that uh, going to a black church. When he said two Corinthians, all the Christians went, whoa, two Corinthians. You could go on and on. And I'm pretty sure Trump is the only one that graduated from Trump University. Uh, so all of these things are in my garage and, and, and going to be in my garage. So and uh, I guess I'm going to be able to change the names around in some of these jokes, though. And uh, because it's different now, Michael, with the uh, with Mr. Um, What's his name? Who's in the, who's the president? Biden. See, I can't even remember his name. You know, I voted for him, obviously, but I love him. But I, I don't know what I love him because he's not funny. He's not funny. He's doing a lot of great things. He's, he came in there using um, four-letter words, you know, plan. When the, when the last time we heard the word plan? Well, not out of Trump's mouth because nothing is ever planned. And that's what I'm talking. Right, which is really, it's really sad because the difference between somebody like Trump and somebody like Biden is in order to have a plan, you actually have to have empathy. You have to want to do something for somebody else other than yourself. And that's what Donald Trump is all about. The whole campaign was nothing more than a, it was a stunt. It was supposed to be the greatest political advertisement in the history of the world. And that's what he wanted. It was supposed to be an infomercial. So if you're going to make the infomercial all about you and then you're crazy enough and you win, one would think that you would actually try to shift gears and try to be the best president that you can be. Instead, he was still just looking to create some sort of a benefit for his eponymous company that he could take advantage of. And that's why he ended up losing. It really, it's not just about his bungling of the pandemic. It's not just about his bungling of immigration and, and prison reform. It's the fact that he didn't care. He didn't and care. And that's the big difference between Biden and Trump. Yeah, he didn't want to learn. You know, had I got in uh, office by mistake, I'd go, hey, shit, I got to read here. I got to be, you got to, I got to be hip every morning Come and I have, I would read your briefings, teach me everything I can. That, I would have, I would have became a better president. Just because I'm in now and I got to do good things. But he never studied. He never went to the briefings. And, and that was not good. And that's maybe that's why. He, no, he didn't win because of some black ladies. Now, if you want to get into that, let's go straight into it. Now, how does he feel about these black ladies that he didn't particularly care for? Let's say Stacey Abrams and uh, the DA of Atlanta and the DA of uh, New York City. He's got to deal with them. Is it the DM New York City or the attorney general? It's just the attorney general, Tish James. Well, he's got three ladies he's got to deal with. It's going to be pretty, pretty tough on him coming up. So, yeah, I don't know whether he's going to jail or not. I don't know. And speaking of jail, how do you really lucked out with the pandemic? You're at home, right? I am at home confinement. Correct. Now you're at home confinement. And, and I'm happy you're at home. But I want to know one thing. And you, you broke my spirit a few moments ago. What do you do for laughter? But you just open up with laughter a few moments ago. And I just thought that was great, man. I just thought because I see you, most of your interviews are like uh, serious. You're talking to uh, all of these news people and 
you just open up with me with nothing but laughter. And I'm glad you're laughing because that's the business I'm in. And those are the kind of questions I would ask you. What's, what's keeping you happy these days? My wife, my daughter, and my son, for the most part. Um, because short of that, I really don't have anything left after that. It's sad. You know, I had a wonderful life. I had a wonderful life before working for Trump. You know, I got very lucky early on in my life and I made a lot of money and I didn't need to work anymore. And then Donald Trump came into my life, asked me to work for him. And while so many people want to say, oh, you know, you were just making money, you were grifting like the rest of them off of Trump. It's not true. Mine is not a rags to riches story. It's a riches to rags story. And, you know, once I get off the home confinement, I'm going to have to now reinvent myself again. Um, <laughs> it may be comedy. <laughs> you Michael, know, most trial no, lawyers. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you that you got to do that. You got to do the, com- you got to get on the comedy circuit, dude. You're ready to go. And you got Half your show is done. All you need is 30 minutes of talk, and the audience is going to ask you the questions, and you're going to make tons of money. I'm your new management. Today, I'm your new management. We're going to go on tour together. I'm going to do some comedy, then I'm going to open for you, and you're going to go out and take some questions, and the people are going to love you. Okay, that's a deal. Now, George, just keep going on here. On February 17th, you retweeted a clip of Rush Limbaugh, and I am no fan of Rush Limbaugh. Um that was a torrent of racism, homophobia, election conspiracy, and more that was intermixed with commentators talking about his decency and being a proud American patriot. Now, to me, he was a bigot and an extremist, and he was responsible for the radicalization of millions of Americans. Now, I say good riddance. What's your message to those who wish to deify him as this American hero? I never saw him that way. And Michael, when we got the news yesterday, I went, stop, don't say anything, just shut up. You know, but first, you know, so first thing you want to think is, my goodness, it's about time um, because so many people were led in the wrong direction because of him and with his thoughts. And uh, you just never know. There's a market for you. No matter what you do, there's a market for you out there. You can be negative. You can be positive. You can whatever. There's somebody that will listen to you when you say and do a lot of crazy stuff. And obviously he had, what, 70, 80 million people following him? Something like that? Yeah. Yep, an enormous number of people. So, but uh, now we don't have to deal with that, but there's somebody else coming along. You know, it's uh, it's what he taught and the followers and the, you know, I, I don't know about hatred. I'm not into it. The first time I saw something stupid, Michael, you're not going to believe this. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, okay? And when I grew up, uh, I grew up with Dr. Martin Luther King and the leaders like that here in Atlanta. And I had heard all of the racism, the racist uh, uh, comments about black people and the N-word. But when I got to school in Akron, Ohio, I saw a sign that kill all Jews. And I'm going, what the hell is that all about? I didn't know people could be so mean. And then you hear the chants that were down in Charlottesville. Is that where it was? The yes, Jews it was. Not Jews will not replace us. I, I couldn't believe that. And you get all of these groups and people are following these people. That, and they were in the White House. and. I just can't believe people, um, well, you know, they listen to people like uh, Rush Limbaugh. I thought it was just terrible. You know, for me, that was especially uh, painful because my father is a Holocaust survivor. So that was a chant that, of course, was reminiscent of, you know, the Nazi Germany period in time. 
And so to sit back and not see Trump denounce that type of hatred for Jews exactly. was especially painful for me. But it's not it's not less painful than when I saw Trump go silent regarding the George Floyd killing or any of the or other any of the others, killings. Yes. Right. Yes. You know, I don't I don't have less emotion when it's somebody who's black or somebody who's white, someone who's Jewish or somebody who's a Muslim. I, I don't I don't care. Right. I truly don't care. I don't understand how a man who's supposed to be a president to all of us just decides that he's only going to be the president to those people that worship him, which is predominantly the Southern white Christian coalition. And I took offense to it. And it was one of the reasons that I decided, one of the reasons that I decided to start to speak out, because this is not the Donald Trump that he was supposed to be. Now, he has character faults, don't get me wrong, and many of them. Right. But one of the things we all expected was that now that he was president of the United States, that he would rise to the office of the presidency. He would rise to the most important seat in the world. But instead, he denigrated it. He shit all over it as if it didn't mean anything, because, again, it was never about us. It was always about him. Yeah. When did you learn? I, you, did you not know before you went into the White House? Did you not know you were representing him for many a year? When did you know that? Oh, this guy is kind of like full of shit, you know? Well, I talk about that in my book, Disloyal. It was basically before I even started working for him when he told me that he had given me a great deal on the apartments that I bought that I currently live in, which is in the Trump building, believe it or not. And, um, I paid I paid asking price. It wasn't like he gave me asking, a great deal. You paid asking price? <laughs> I, were, I did. And would you and I'm Jewish, right? <laughs> you're Jewish on Fifth Avenue. I you know, I live on across uh, across the way. I live on uh, Central Park West. And I did not know about the um the prejudice on Fifth Avenue about uh Jewish people are not too welcome. Jewish Jews and blacks are not too welcome on Fifth Avenue. I did not know about that, Michael. Listen, we've been in a struggle for many years together. Um, the racism, the hatred, you know, has been something that I, for one, you know, have seen that type of racism. I remember when I was in Michigan and I remember there was this young girl that I had met while I was there. And um, when she found out I was Jewish, she looked at me. She goes, well, where are your fucking horns? And I turned around. I was like, what? And then I said, didn't you notice the mezuzah hanging on the outside of my door? She looked at me and she said to me, I thought that was an alarm system. (laughs) And I said, well, it's not. It's actually a parchment from the Torah. It is funny. (laughs) She thought it was an alarm. I thought it was a doorbell. I didn't know. That is so offensive to to have heard that. And, you know, of course, my best friend is a Jewish guy. And uh, I'm pretty sure you know that. Do you know that? I did not know that. There's a show called Seinfeld. Yes. And what's the roommate's name? The best friend's name? The best friend. You're talking about uh, Costanza? George. Yeah, George Costanza. I'm the actually George that was his roommate for 13 years. Oh, oh, well, there you have I, it. I'm actually, we've been friends for 45 years. We have a little something going on there. I was his best man in his wedding. Uh, and uh, 
I'm also the father of, of his kids. It's funny that you say that because I don't understand racism. We never had racism permitted in my house. My parents didn't permit it. I had friends, even as a young, young child, from all races, religions, creeds, colors. And it didn't matter. Again, you have to understand from my father's background, which, of course, was, you know, some pretty ugly racism going on. Uh, he was born in he was from Poland. So it wasn't allowed in my house. But what I don't understand is to judge somebody based upon the color of the skin as opposed to their personality. Now, I may dislike you. You may happen to be black, but I don't dislike you because you're black. I dislike you because you're an asshole. Right. Or or you just well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I am both. What do you (laughs) (laughs) I'm not talking specifically to you, George. You're a guest on my show. I'm just telling you I'm a black ass. No, I'm (laughs) just right. I want to talk to you guys for a moment about data security. It seems like every day, everywhere, practically everyone is connected on their devices. Most people spend up to seven hours a day using their devices, and 64% of those surveyed admitted to taking some serious online risks each and every day for the sake of convenience. All that browsing, sharing, banking, and shopping makes life easy, but it can also expose personal information, making you vulnerable to cyber criminals. There's a lot to your digital life that can put you at risk. That's why Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to help keep it safe with device security to help block hackers from devices, a VPN for online privacy, and LifeLock identity theft protection to help you keep what's yours, yours. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrimes or identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But with the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can be less worried about becoming another stat. In my previous line of work, I made a few enemies. Some of them even employed sophisticated technology to steal my personal information right off my computer and hack my phone. That's why I protect myself and my data using LifeLock to hide what matters most from the prying eyes of hackers, trolls, and private security looking to get my personal intel or cause me financial damage. So do yourself a favor and protect yourself. It's that easy. Save 25% or more off your first year at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's Norton.com slash Cohen to save 25%. Now, if you can, George, describe for me your frustration in watching Trump get acquitted in his impeachment trial, despite the senators knowing that he was guilty. How did this trial compare to others where justice was most uh, definitely not served? Michael, for me, it was like all of those senators, and I think we need your names. I'm already planning. Uh, I work with uh, a group called Black Voters Matter, uh, uh, Fair Fight and all. I think you have to put a billboard of all of their faces up just with a question mark next to it. Because you know what they said? It's okay to go into the White House, into the Capitol with a gun. It's okay to kill five people. They approved it. They approved all of those senators that voted not to quit him. They sat there and they approved. It's okay with me. It's against democracy. You know, it's okay to go into the Capitol of all the places with a gun. People were killed, smearing smudges all over the wall. That's not cool for me. How can anybody do that? And the senator said, that's okay. So I felt bad about it, about the uh, being acquitted. It's right there in your face. What, what are you supposed to do? 
I mean, especially when you see the great job that was done by the house managers. I mean, you started to see Stacy Plaskett, Jamie Raskin with that, with that heartfelt appeal, Eric Swalwell laying out the facts, you know, um, I mean, they did Colorado. They did everything. They should be, and it was all truthful. And it's all truthful. And yet you had the three bozos on the other side that were defending Trump. They misinformation, lies, you know, more misinformation than a few more lies because they didn't need to have truth. And that's a big problem in the country, too. There was no need for truth because they knew they already were going to win. They already because won. You don't have right. You don't have 17 courageous um, Republican senators that are willing to call Donald Trump what he 17, is. Only 17 didn't do anything. I think maybe it's about money, Michael. Maybe there's some kind of money. You know more than I do what's going on in that organization. Uh, money's come from different directions. I think it's all about money. That and also their job security. Well, that's part of the money. So, and you know, that's why if I were to run for president, you know, my head is, my head is crazy. I want to run for president. And I definitely want a fifteen minimum, uh, fifteen dollar minimum hour per pay, uh, uh, for work, uh, because I think that's what Congress should be making fifteen dollars an hour, and they should they would see how people feel that make that kind of money. Why could you not? What's the problem with voting to give people money? And if you want to give fifteen dollars minimum wage per hour, what would they do with that money? Right back into the economy. Well, that's that's true, but for some unknown reason, you know, you have economists that are telling you that. $15 an hour would then increase the cost for goods. So you know what? So then you buy one less plate. You buy one less dish, right? Then you don't, you, so what? The hamburger's going to go from a dollar? That doesn't mean anything, but them buy one less. Not everybody in Congress can afford If the price go up, they're still in good shape. It doesn't hurt them at all. So why not share the, 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 the goodness with the with American people? The people that you represent, you don't want this kid at McDonald's to make $15 an hour? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? So I think your purpose on earth is to give back. And I think we got some young people in office, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm wearing Georgia blue. And I thank God we got young people in there like uh, Minister uh, Warnock and John Ossoff. I started the phrase, vote your Ossoff for John Ossoff. I started that phrase. And I'm glad (laughs) we got these young people in there. And it's going to be a change. I think that Black Lives Matter. And I think the 30% of the young white voters and the college students, and thank God for this little uh, iPhone here and the, and the cell phones, they're getting the story out. People can see things they didn't see before, not just starting with a lot of happened with George Floyd, but now people are learning the truth about how this country should be run and what's going on. And I, you know, you get into me, you start talking about police brutality, and, and we're finding out now how many uh, uh, KKK members are involved in the police department. So so I get into politics. I try to put a twist on it, but it's so simple. If I were to run for office, there's only two things. There's the truth and not the truth, wrong and right. I think I could be a great politician. No, then you should run. But I will tell you, George, I love the video that you shared from Wanda Sykes showing Hakeem Jeffrey uh, absolutely destroying Utah's Trump-supporting first-term congressman, Burgess Owens, right, for coming in on his first day and lecturing Democrats about patriotism <laughs> when Owens voted, right, when Owens voted to overturn the November election, even after the Capitol insurrection. I thought Jeffries was about to get up and get physical at that time because it was just so ridiculous. It, it was, it was, but you know, I'm glad he did that. But we got a lot of symptoms if I were there. Tim Scott, our black guy, 
How could he vote not for the police uh, law? What is the police law? Um, it was a chokehold. That's what it was, a chokehold. It was a chokehold. Mm-hmm. That's Tim Scott of South Carolina. So we got to get rid of him. So I'll say, now, I guess I'm racist, too. I want to get rid of him. I want to get rid of Judge Clarence Thomas. I got some black guys in office. They ain't doing shit for us, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, in, in all fairness, it shouldn't be a black and white issue. It should just be an issue. Like, for example... Take prison reform, something that I have now gotten very heavily involved in because of my experience. And I can honestly tell you, black, white, Hispanic, brown, it makes no difference. The the entire system, it's screwed up. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. There is a difference in the black and the brown because we're the one that they're putting in jail. They build these jails for us. They're money-making profit system there with the jails and uh, and, and put us in the jails. I'm glad that we have people like uh, in Atlanta, you know, stop the, the bails, you know, the guys in there for marijuana Jordan. Why should he be in jail there? I'm a big fan of the fact that Biden has made it part of his platform that he is going to deal with prison reform because prison yes. reform, as far as I'm concerned, is desperately needed. It's one of the things that's probably most needed. You know, there was a guy that was with me in Otisville, a black guy who ended up with I think he got 10-year sentence for marijuana. But it, yes. was, a, it, was, a, it was a large quantity. Um, and so, on. actually, I apologize. It wasn't 10 years. He got 20 years. Yeah, and the reason years. that he was now at Otisville was because he had already done more than 10-plus years. Because to be at Otisville, you have to be 10 years and under. And what was amazing is that the amount of marijuana that he was moving was like 10,000 pounds. Now, that's a that's a nice size quantity. But if you look to see today, because marijuana is much more recognized in society today, there are publicly traded companies that are moving 10,000 pounds an hour. An hour. Don't I know my stock just went down in three of them. Okay, <laughs> I decided with the, with this administration, they're a little more liberal, and it appears that the marijuana does work. I've never smoked a joint in my life, but I believe neither have I. That's cool, Michael. Very time, very seldom I met anybody. Never, I just never wanted to. Never just, I got drunk one time in my life in college. Never wanted to be drunk again. So I would not try the, the marijuana, even though I have nothing against the people that do it. But uh, if it makes them feel better. Let's do it. Let's give it to them. And, and that's happening right now. It's even going to happen down here in Georgia with these freaks down here. Georgia's getting very close to Florida, by the way, in craziness. In what way? Everything. They're doing stupid stuff. The governor down here, you know, look at that lady we got in office now. What's her name? Marjorie Taylor Greene. So let me jump. Let me jump right into her, because if we're going to talk about in insanity, we're going to talk about insane congresswoman from Georgia, from Georgia. Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes. because you wrote this and I'm going to quote it from you. You wrote this. Are you talking about lunacy? <laughs> there are shithouse rats turning to each other going, damn, that lady is 30 fries short of a happy meal. Discuss with me how you think we got to the point where we're electing people who believe in Jewish space lasers. I'm telling you, that's why I'd say the craziest state in America is Florida. Now Georgia is moving into it. And she had all of those voters up there. It's outside of Atlanta. That's another thing I think we should do. Change this. Atlanta should become its own state. Like I think D.C. should become its own state because there's D.C., then there's Atlanta, and then there's Georgia. Just totally different people with the, uh, we just found two guys in the police department, member of the KKK here in Georgia, Hampton, Georgia. They're all over the place, and that kills us. 
I'm sorry to get back on police brutality, but when you've got members of the KKK running a police department, what does that tell you? It tells you that we have some real problems going on here. But it's funny that you turn around and you say, you know, she's 30 fries short of a Happy Meal. We used to say it a little bit different, me and my buddies. You're one hamburger shy of a Happy Meal, right? That's how we used to describe people. Who well, are- I had to change it around because I'm writing, I got this book, Bull Twit. And this, it, it is, um, I know you have a copy of it. I, I hope we sent you a copy. Bull Twit. And whatnot, little online ramblings on my brain. I just want people to laugh, and especially talking to you. That's why I was talking about laughter earlier. I would like to put something and to share the book with you, so you can just laugh every now and then. I like for you to pee a little from your eyes, pee from your eyes, and it's just little jokes in there. I got to get in in two hundred eighty characters. I never wanted to write a book about tweeting because I didn't want to give away my jokes for free. <laughs> Bull twit and whatnot. I did not want to give the jokes away for free. Then I thought about it. Wait a minute. There's over 500 million tweets per day. And these people would never be able to come to Las Vegas and see me or see me at Madison Square Garden and all of the places. I said, well, let me try. And today, I'm so happy I did that. And it's just a lot of laughs, little things off the top of my head, uh, talking about how I grew up in Georgia and things like things I'll straight up do. I'll like, I'll eat cupcakes out of a pan and pancakes out of a cup. I don't care. I don't give a shit anymore. I talk about how poor we were here in Atlanta. We were so poor at, at my school. We had driver's ed and sex ed in the same car. Little, 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 little <laughs> clips like that. We're just having fun. And you should get the book, georgewallace.com, um, georgewallace.net, bull twit and whatnot. We were voted the top five funniest tweeters in the world by Rolling Stone magazine. And you need laughter. We need more laughter in our lives. And I want you to take that book and I want you to read it and then follow me at Mr. George Wallace. And I guarantee you, we're going to put more laughter in your life. Whatever you do, you've got to keep laughter in your life, especially in your business. Well, especially in my, especially in my, in my situation right now, because there's really nothing funny when I'm suing the government, right, for the retaliation putting me back into prison because I wouldn't, ref- because I wouldn't sign a document that waived my First Amendment constitutional right. And now, as it relates, I'm suing the government again. I'm suing the government now, which is really uh, in order to force the Bureau of Prisons to do what they're required to do under the statute is 18 U.S.C. 3632, but it's known as the First Step Act. They are supposed to provide to federal inmates earned time credits. Yet the Bureau of Prisons under Michael Carvajal, they're so inept at everything, they still can't tell you what your what your credits are going to be. So I filed a habeas corpus action and they have now a, left about another month before they have to reply. And hopefully that the judge that I have assigned to this case is going to do the right thing. And based on the judge's decision, it will affect many, many, many federal inmates. Now, not all federal inmates. You have to, you have to be part of a certain group of people based upon your, um, your charges, based upon recidivism rates and stuff like that. But by me doing this, my intent is to help to push the first step back, which is prison reform, because Lord knows they're not going to do it on their own. It's two years since this orange-crusted, bloviated fool stood up there, signed a damn piece of paper, and he turns around and he says, I've done more, I've done more for prison reform than anybody since Abraham Lincoln. Everything is fucking Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. You know, let me tell you something else when it came to people of color and different races and religions with Donald Trump. I remember when he was first going out there on the on the trail and 
the media covered him vociferously. I mean, they were on top of him continuously. And every time he got up and he spoke and they would pan into the crowd, the one thing you notice, it's like a Rangers game. It's like find the black guy, right? When you go to Madison Square Garden for a Rangers game, okay? And you couldn't find anybody of color. So I remember going into his office the following day, and I said to him, you know, Mr. Trump, you notice that your crowds are completely vanilla, right? It's, it's, all, it's all salt. We need a little pepper. We need a little pepper in there, my friend, because you're not going to win the election unless you get a percentage of the, of the black and brown vote. It's just statistically you cannot win. So if the intent is to try to win, we really need some diversity. He looked at me and he said to me, straight up, he goes, black people are too stupid to vote for me. I said to him, well, we'll see about that. I think you've said that a few times, but we haven't heard you say it enough. But it's over now. So, But it is good to hear. And we, we all know and we all knew anytime you see a crowd of all white, 99% white, and with the flags and with the T-shirts and everything wrong, that's not good because America should be represented with the people that live in America. And that's what we're trying to do right now. It looks good in there. The administration, you see people of color, see a lot of ladies. It's just, America looks good. And I think ladies do a better job, by the way. By the way, I agree with you because you know there's the expression that behind every great man is a woman kicking me in the ass and saying, hey, schmuck, keep moving, right? Exactly. You know, don't stop. Exactly. <laughs> Finishing up with what I was telling you. So when I walked into his office and I said to him, we'll see about that. I actually called this pastor friend of mine from, uh, from Ohio. Um, and I said to him, I have an idea. I want to create something. And I did. It was called the National Diversity Coalition for Trump. And basically, we put together millions and millions of people all of whom are people of color, Muslims, Hispanics, you know, Mexicans, Polish, Ukrainians. I mean, everybody. If you had a group, we wanted you in. I mean, we even had Martin Luther King's niece, um, um, Alvida. Uh, she joined as, as part of it. We had, I mean, Amorosa was one of my yeah, original. Yeah, one of my best friends. Vernon Jones is one of my best friends here in Georgia, you know? Yeah. I, I don't like that because you cannot stand for a person, Michael. Let me just say this straight ahead. That's doing you wrong. You cannot support anybody that's doing you wrong. And I don't know how many people you had joined you, but I'm glad you didn't get enough. Millions of people, millions. And but the problem was, he just refused. He completely refused to accept them, unless of course they were there kissing his ass like um, diamonds and silk that would go out there every day. I brought them in as well. When I see you. I'm going to kick your ass for bringing in diamond and silk, okay? That's, it's going to be a friendly kick. I'm not going to put my foot all the way on your ass, but it's going to be close, okay? Are you going to kick me with one of those clown shoes? Gonna, well, I call him a walking circus peanut, you know, or orange walking circus peanut. That's what I call him. So, yes, I might kick you with one of those big-ass clown shoes. So <laughs> I just, Believe me, I deserve it. Let me, can I ask you one question? Don't, don't, I got to ask you this question. When you are relieved of your house uh, arrest, what are you going to do where are you going to go? What, what are you going to do to get just a breath of fresh air? Are you, have you thought about that? I have. I think about it every second of every day. Um, I'm going to take my wife by the hand, and we're just going to take a walk. I'm going to take a walk down, down Madison Avenue. You're going to Central Park? I go there every day, but oh, I go by so myself. You can, you can take a walk. You can take a walk. Two hours a day I'm allowed out. 
That's good. Well, I'll meet you in Central Park on Done. Sunday where the, where, the, where the skaters are, okay? Where they, where they do the free skating uh, every Sunday. I'll meet you right in, uh, up at the uh, band shell. I'll meet you. I'm up there every Sunday in the summer. Uh, Central Park is the greatest the place in the world to hang out. I'm glad you live in my area. And I'm on, on the west side and you're on the east side and we'll see each other. Are you on the east side? I am. I'm on the east side. Okay. Well, George, I understand that you recently got your COVID vaccine for what you refer to it as the Trump month. <laughs> What's the first thing that you're going to do with your immunity? And did you read the book? That joke is, I think I did that joke last year. I forgot half, you know, because I wrote the book a year ago. So it was a stop calling it the China's, the China virus. It's the Trump mumps. That's what, it's, that's what it is, the Trump mumps. And then I got, I'm become, I became very angry because, like, I want to, uh, Dr. Fauci. And what was her name, uh, Dr. Burke? Mm-hmm. I was a little upset with them, Michael. I was a little upset with them because they knew this year, at this time, they knew exactly what was happening. But they, too, didn't stand up and say anything. How do you lower your integrity by somebody lying in front of you? What did Dr. Burke say? He had charts that she had never seen, and they just sit there and do nothing. Why can you stand up and tell the truth then? What if you were to get fired? You'd be a greater man than you are today to get fired. We want a year without hearing the truth. Everyday lying. So I am. I want to ask Doctor Fauci about that one day. If I get to the, why didn't you say something earlier? Well, because you have to understand. You know, have you ever came across Donald Trump in the show business capacity or in any capacity? Yes, I did. I known him. I known him for a while. I'm a New Yorker, so I know. Listen, how do you say this? And I've told people before. I live on Central Park West, and he lives three streets there. His other building, the hotel is down the street from me. I know he lives on Fifth Avenue. But all bullshitters know each other. Michael, listen to me. All bullshitters know each other. I'm a bullshitter. I mean, we don't know each other, but we know each other. Right. But between, say like between Celebrity Apprentice and his casinos, most folks that I speak to have their own Trump story. Do you have one with Trump? Well, I want to uh, support uh, support Penn and Teller. Uh, with the ice cream and Ben and Jerry's and, uh, and then he walked into the room and people were shaking his hand. I walked away. I don't, I didn't want to meet him. I knew he was a bullshitter and I know he was wrong. I don't like meeting bad people ever. I don't ever want to meet bad people because that doesn't represent me. Well, I can't shake your hand and say, good to meet you because it's not. So I've always known about Trump. You know, Central Park, come on, man, you get me into the Central Park five, you get me into the, the apartment uh, renting in Queens, you, you know, and, and then when we had the first cases of, uh, of, of COVID, he said he went out with a very nice hospital in Queens. You know, that's probably the worst hospital in Queens. And I'm sure he'd never been in that damn hospital. I got to tell you something. We're glad that you're telling the truth, man. I love it when you tell the truth. And now we know the story. And I love it when you told them that you're going to get caught up in the same trap I got caught up in. And they, and they, this is what has happened. They didn't listen to you. Why would I not listen to you when you made that statement? Two years ago. I warned the country that if Trump lost in 2020, that there would never be a peaceful transfer of power because I know the animal. I know who I'm dealing with. You know, I've spent enough time around him to understand him. I sadly, I graduated magna cum laude from Trump University <laughs> and I understand the sickness. I understand his sickness. I, un- I understand his his mentality. And it's sad because I warned the same idiots like the Jim Jordans, the Mark Meadows of the world. Why do you I, call Jim Jordan names first? Oh, is he an idiot or what? You know, I went to school in Ohio. He's an idiot. And man, when you spoke, 
He speaks in codes. I'm going, that's the truth right there. That's the truth. And I knew you were telling the truth when you when you start, made, made that statement. Listen, I had no reason at that point not to tell the entire truth. But here's something that's interesting, George. You know, people, because of Donald Trump, labeled me as a convicted liar. You've, you've heard him say that. Yes. Because Donald Trump is very keen on doing one thing. It's very Stalinistic. What he does is he repeats things over and over, over and, and over again. And the goal for that is so that people start to repeat it themselves. And then somehow it takes on a life of its own and it becomes a truth. It becomes a Trump truth. And the problem Don't is. Don't forget, I'm a bullshitter. I tell the same jokes every night. I even have to tell the people, this shit is true. I'm making up. So that's why I know, you know, <laughs> over and over and people start to believe you. You know, I do a joke on stage. I was in Hong Kong last night. I was in China. I was in uh, Singapore last night. I was in Brazil last night. People keep saying, didn't he say he was such a... And, and they believe me. You said over and over and over. And people said, how did you like Hong Kong? And I'm going to the lady, what the hell are you talking about? She said, you said on stage, you were in Hong Kong. I said, lady, I'm bullshit. I'm just lying, you know? But if you say it over and over and over, that's why, once again, I'll say, all bullshitters know each other. And I knew Trump was a bullshitter from day one. And the problem is most people, they only remember what Trump was saying because the media continue to promote that same lie. So when they said that I lied and I stated to Congress that I only spoke to Trump three times regarding a failed real estate project in Moscow, when in fact I, I lied, I spoke to him 10 times. That's my big lie. That's it. That That's is it. it. That lie. is it. That's the big lie. All right. And so, again, that's Trump's ability to label me in a way so that when I would eventually tell the truth that the Republicans could stay on message, which each and every single one of them did during that House Oversight Committee hearing. Right. Each and every one attacked me, calling me a convict, a felon, convicted liar, you know, tax evader, the whole nine yards. They accused me of everything simply because it was to denigrate me and to discredit me. And that was Trump's goal right from the very beginning. Right. And so my... As I, as I say all the time, you know, there's famous sayings about truth. Truth will always rise. It will always, it will always rise and it will take some time. And I deal with that pain and I deal with that anxiety from it every day. But I am 100% certain that during the course of my lifetime, the truth about what happened from President Trump to Bill Barr, all the way down to the judge that sentenced me, to the prosecutors, to, you know, all the way to the Steele dossier, which were all lies about me. I'd never been to Prague. None of that. It's None of it's true from the oh beginning my. to the end. And that's the next book that I'm actually working on right now. But, you know, George, let me keep moving here because I'm curious if you saw the news today that Ted Cruz has left the state of Texas where half of the population of his state is literally yes. freezing to go to Cancun with his family, right? Any thoughts on what he's thinking beyond, I hope I don't get caught? Because to me, it's got to be the fucking dumbest thing I've ever <laughs> seen anybody do. How do you hope you don't get caught when you go into the airport and people see what's happening? He's an idiot. And yes, you got to stay at home. He was running away from America, running away from his people. He's already told he's an idiot. If somebody tells me my wife is ugly and your dad is a murderer, you'll never be my friend again. So Ted going down to Mexico to the sun, running away from the people, running away from the issue. However, I don't know what he could do 
But as a representative, as a senator, you should be in the state of Texas. That's what he should do. But uh, I don't like him and I don't know much about him. And I just don't talk much about Ted Cruz. Don't like him. Jim Jordan is my second guy. Yeah, you know, it was, again, in Texas, it's an unprecedented event. I got family that lives in Dallas. Um, it's, I mean, it was an unprecedented weather um, effect that right. that hit Texas, and my heart goes out to them. You see these people standing on line in the, in the cold trying to get, to get water, water right, just to get water and so on. And this guy is off running for margaritas. Right to, to Cancun, Mexico. Oh, my, it was my, my daughter's, you know, she, I wanted to be a good dad. Really? Do you know, you know, many of us gave up a lot in order to do the right thing. Do you exactly. think for a second, Ted, you dope, right? You're talking better than me. Go ahead and say it. You dope. You, you idiot. Stupid dope. <laughs> Right. I mean, you're going to go running off so that you could sit in the sun with margaritas and not be affected by this this once in a lifetime sort of event. And don't worry, I'll come back and I'll tell everybody I'm on it. I'm taking care of it with his tan. Right. And so on. I mean, the whole thing is just pure nonsense. These are the kind of things that I want others to stand up and say, no, Ted, you're not allowed to fucking run again on behalf of Texas. If I was a Texan, I would I would demand exactly. that he immediately resign. Look what they did to Al Franken, to your buddy, right? He, yes. This, what's worse? That's what's a maybe, worse? and it was a maybe. It's a maybe, yeah? And he's not sure. He doesn't remember touching it. Maybe he did, but they kicked him out. But Ted Cruz, got to go. That's when the people of uh, Texas should say, he's not one of us. That's the difference. He's not one of us. Texas is going to go blue. They have the template from Georgia, from Miss um, uh, Abrams, and Texas is going to go blue. We had a problem there, and I worked down there. Uh, we had 276,000 black registered voters that did not vote. But now we're into these people. We're on to our friends, and they're going to vote the next time, and things are going to happen. And we've got to start locally. It's very important that you do vote all over the world. And we see things can happen. Georgia went blue, Georgia blue. And I think all of the other stations, all of states are going to join in. The, su- the South is going to change. That's what I'm saying. Alabama is going to change. Louisiana is going to change. South Carolina, North Carolina, because we know our votes do matter. Black voters do matter. And there's going to be some changes made. And once again, thank God for the 30% of the white young kids, the white voters too, and the Asians. And, the, and I think one thing I think we may, we should do better is in, always, always include the American Indians. We should always include them in everything we do because they got fucked more than anybody. Well, yeah, and I talk about that on this podcast as well. But I want to speak to you for a moment about the racist double standard applied to the treatment of the rioters who stormed the Capitol versus the social justice <laughs> protesters from last summer's Black Lives Matter <laughs> protest in Washington, right, where they were tear gassed, shot with rubber bullets, beaten and then arrested. Now, Riley Williams was one of the rioters who broke into the Capitol and she stole a laptop from Speaker Pelosi's office and then tried, I mean, get a load of the stupidity on this. She tried selling it to the Russians. Now, she was released to her mother, whereas you wrote on January 6th, if those assholes looked like me, they would have been dead three times over before they got a mile from the Capitol balcony. From the Capitol. Talk yeah, to me and, about this. So there was a kid in New York, black kid, stole a backpack. He was in jail for three years and still didn't get a trial 
And then you have this girl that stole the computer. She was released to her mom. And so the treatment is, that takes me back to the treatment of, uh, not after George, well, mostly after George Floyd, but it's been happening for years. It's been happening for years, the treatment we, the treatment we would have gotten. Let's go back to the state house in Michigan when all of those guys showed up with guns in the state capitol. A black guy gets out of the car. We couldn't even get close. We'd be dead. I can't even, but we had the guy on raptors, window raptors going up the Capitol. I can't even storm Arby's. You know, I go to Arby's and ask the guy to get straight out my prize. They kick my ass out. These guys got, not only did they let them in the Capitol, Michael, they let them out. Once you were inside that barricade, you know you were breaking the law. Buses would have been there. We'd have been locked up. We'd have been shot. There'd have been blood everywhere. So there is a difference. And that's what we are. That's what we're dealing with. And that's what people are looking at. And, uh, even Congress knows this. Everybody knows had it been an uh, ethnic group, Muslims, blacks, browns, we never would have made it into the Capitol. So I think that was an inside job. I don't know what you think, but I think that was an inside job to let the people in. Well, I think that there's a definite distinction between the group of insurrectionists on January 6th and Black Lives Matter. I mean, one of them was a peaceful protest that, yes, and look, we can't ignore what we see. There's a group of individuals that were taking advantage of the protest created by Black Lives Matter. They're a group completely separate and distinct that decided that this is a good time for us to smash windows, to break into Best Buy, and to go ahead and to start stealing shit. But that's not Black Lives Matter. And that's the mistake that many in the media and not enough people talk about because you can you cannot take that group of opportunists and make them into black lives matter and i was offended i've lost a few friends as a result of it when i say to them how fucking ignorant can you be to think that black lives matter protesters are designing BLM for the sole purpose of breaking into Best Buy to steal telephones, televisions, and, and, and radios. I mean, come on. I said, that's not what they are, right? There was one scene that I talked about a couple of weeks ago on this podcast where they busted down the windows of Best Buy and a Rolls Royce Jeep pulled up in front and 20 guys to 30 guys came running out with televisions and all sorts of electronics, throwing it into the back of this $450,000 Rolls Royce Jeep, right? I can assure you that those people were not Black Lives Matter protesters. I can assure exactly. you that the people that were doing the damage, right, were there just you to saw, create. If you could see this on camera, Michael, if you could sit on camera, that was the auto zone in Minneapolis, Minnesota. White guy came in with all, but he, he broke the windows down. But the white guy, same thing happened in Atlanta, Georgia. White lady lit the windows on fire where the kid was shot. And, and then they, but they blame all of Black Lives Matter and they don't know what's going on and they don't report that part. And that looks bad. That's because our president is the racist in chief, right? He's, he is the racist in chief. I don't know how many times that. I have actually gone out now and said it, that Donald Trump is a racist. How can anybody not know that? You just, you just, I know good people. That's all there is to it. Good people are good people. They have friends. If you do the right thing, everybody wants you to be your friend. But how many black people want to be his friend? And I know the, the few that I do know is all about money. Yes. Yes, it's 100% true. And it's really sad. It's all about money. 
It's all about it's all about money. Trump it's all was about good for America. It wasn't good for blacks. It wasn't good for anybody. And we'll know that in a few years of history, you look back on history, you go, wow. And everybody can look at this sentence and say, what did you do, grandpa, grandma, to help America? You stood up there, all 47 guys, you guys uh, in the Senate stood up there and didn't do anything about that. That's just terrible. It's terrible. All right. So last question as we wrap this up. You, my friend, are a legendary teller of your mama jokes. Now, I want to tell you that makes you and I connected because Don Lemon and I have been doing your mama jokes to one another. Is that right, for, Don for, Lemon? For three years. Three years. Well, I could have do- been, been his daddy, but his mama didn't have change for a dollar. But we don't need to get into that stuff, okay? <laughs> but I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk to And I to want to you thank you as well. Let's do it again. But you got to do me one favor. You got to keep smiling. You got to keep laughing. You can't, if you think of smile, you'll feel better, okay? And if Deal. you see someone without a, if you see someone without a smile, Michael, you give them yours, okay? Something good's going to happen to you, whether you like it or not. I'm George Wallace. I love you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Get the book, Bull Twit, GeorgeWallace.com, GeorgeWallace.net. A lot of fun. Keep laughter in your life, everybody. Thank you so much. Let's do this again. I'm out of here. I got to make some money. See you later, George. Bye-bye. And now for today's mea culpa. One of the striking aspects of speaking with George Wallace is the kindness and warmth he exudes. Some people just have a special energy that they project out into the universe that makes the recipient feel warm, happy, and connected to something larger than themselves. It made me realize how much I had forgotten to smile and laugh since this whole thing started. I spend so much of my time engaged with the past or fighting through the present that I am in a constant state of agitation and sadness. Speaking with George today was freeing for me in so many ways as I felt like I could, for the first time, let go of some of the past and look at it not with dread, but with humor. It's important, especially during times like these, that we stop and mark the milestones in our lives. Spending the past hour laughing with George made me appreciate where I am right now and all that I have, including this show. It also made me realize everything that I had to endure in order to get here. It's been a humbling journey, but also one marked with moments of incredible beauty and grace where I am able to stop and examine myself and my life. Today has been one of those days. It has filled me with joy and recharged me for the fight yet to come. So thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth.
Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses out Outside of D.C. and on the eastern shore of Maryland, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma, for patients who have achieved recovery but are experiencing a relapse, for young adults, adults 50 years and older, and for LGBTQ plus patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7. And because it's local and in-network with insurance providers, treatment is affordable and accessible. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today.